Psalm 1, if you have your copy of Scripture, I want to invite you to turn there, Psalm 1, and we are in a short sermon series that I have titled Glimpses of the Sun in the Old Testament. We've looked at a variety of places. By the way, Christ is everywhere in the Scriptures, if not explicitly in Scripture by way of prophecy. Um, He is implicitly in the Scriptures by way of typology. But he is also organically related to everything God has breathed out. There's nothing in Scripture that we can understand or that we can put into practice in our lives apart from the Lord Jesus. Um, It's something a lot of Christians never get, and I hope that you're getting it. I hope that I get it. And we are looking tonight at that opening psalm in the Psalter, Psalm 1. And here, presumably David, since... The New Testament writers attribute Psalm 2 to David, and we know that David wrote Psalm 3 and Psalm 4 and Psalm 5 and 6 by the titles that are affixed to them. Uh, We now read, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of God endures forever. Well, C.S. Lewis, in his most uh, well-known work, Mere Christianity, um, talks about the idea of happiness. This is a theme that, if you've read much Lewis, you know, makes its way into many of his writings, the idea of happiness, the, the quest for happiness. And Lewis there in Mere Christianity says, what Satan put into the heads of our first parents was the idea that they could be like God could set up their own selves as if they had created themselves, be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside of God, apart from God. Out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history. Lewis says money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery, the long, terrible story of man, trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. That's one of the most simple and straightforward yet profound ways of capturing really what the psalmist is after here in this opening psalm in in Psalm 1. It's uh, interesting, you'll know this if you have spent any time studying the psalms, that the psalms are not in the chronological order in which they were written. They were compiled at some point probably by Hezekiah, They were put into five books. Many people don't know that the Psalms are divided into five books. And in many cases, they are coupled together with other Psalms. We see this very clearly, don't we, with Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. We don't know who wrote them. We don't know if they were meant to go together, but the compiler saw fit to put them together because of the commonality 
of, of what they stated. And here at the outset of the Psalms, with Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, one writer has said, we have, as it were, the two pillars that are the entrance into the temple of the worship of God. It's really interesting. Psalm 1 sets the stage for everything else that we find in the Psalter. And it is uh, typical, and it is in one sense prototypical, of everything that the wisdom literature is going to talk about. You have two different groups of individuals. You have two ways. You have the way of wisdom and the way of folly. You have the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. You have the broad path and the narrow path. And you'll know that wisdom literature is oftentimes setting that out. If you read the Proverbs, the, the foolish and the wicked are oftentimes frequently set in contrast. We'll hear in Psalm 1, that is so clear at the outset of the psalm. But notice, I want us to see that at the very beginning of the Psalter, before the psalmist gives us any of those amazing psalms that are born not out of an academic meditation, but in the crucible of trial and affliction, where the psalmist or one of the psalmists finding himself in a despairing situation cries out to God and teaches us how to cry out to God, but before doing any of that, notice that the opening words of the Psalter are, blessed is the man. That word blessed in Hebrew could be translated happy. Happy is the man. Where, where does true happiness come from? How, how will I attain to true happiness? Because if Lewis is right, if, if, if man outside of God trying to find happiness apart from God can only do that in money and sex and illicit pleasures, if the best that he can produce in his quest for happiness is war and prostitution, then there has to be another way, a better way. There has to be a way back to the real source of happiness. And the psalmist tonight is telling us that there is a way. There is a way to blessedness. There is a way to experience the blessing of God and happiness in God. I want us to consider three things as we look at this. First, I want us to consider in those opening verses the source of true blessedness. And then secondly, I want us to consider the marks of the righteous and the wicked. And then I want us to consider the destiny of the righteous and the wicked. The source of blessedness, the marks of the righteous and the wicked, and the destiny of the righteous and the wicked. We'll notice that in, in setting out the answer to the question, where can true happiness be found? Where can I find that state of blessedness? Where can my soul find the joys, the solid joys and lasting pleasures that it is longing for? The psalmist begins with a negative. Very interesting. Before he states positively what the source is, he states it negatively first. Notice he says, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, who does not stand in the way of sinners, who does not sit in the seat of scoffers. Now, why does the psalmist see fit to open a, a discussion about where to find true happiness with a negative assertion about where it's not to be found? One old writer, Hankstenberg, put it this way, in order to explain the blessed condition of the righteous, the psalmist starts with the negative that the righteous should first be described negatively has its ground in the proneness of human nature to what is evil. Listen carefully. Because you and I are so prone to try to find happiness in what is evil, 
the psalmist must start with a declaration of where true happiness is not found. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, who does not sit with scoffers, who does not walk, who does not stand in the way of sinners. Well, you may have noticed this at some point. There seems to be something of a progression in, in the embrace of wickedness. Notice that the psalmist moves from the man walking in the counsel of the wicked. The idea is they're on a journey together. They're plotting together. They're scheming together. They are traveling somewhere together talking about what wickedness they can do. And then notice that he says, blessed is the man who does not stand. Now he stopped. And he's put himself squarely in that council. Perhaps the idea is of the elders standing at the gates of the city and, and planning and devising plans. And, and here uh, the psalmist is saying that this man who once walked in the council of the wicked now stands in the way of sinners. And then he gets so comfortable that he sits in the seat of scoffers. There is now a settledness. And the reason I think the psalmist sets out that descriptive imagery of this progression from walking to standing to sitting is, is because the way that sin works when we try to find our happiness in it is that we end up going deeper and deeper and deeper because it can never really truly give us the blessedness we're seeking. There's always more. Um, I think it was Rockefeller that they asked, how, how much money is enough money? He said, one more dollar. It's never enough. Tom Brady, after winning five Super Bowls, I'll never forget hearing a podcast, and, and he said to the, um, to the host, he said, I just can't help but thinking there has to be more to life than this. It's never enough. This is why the Rolling Stones wrote that song, Can't Get No Satisfaction. That, that it's never enough. That sin will never satisfy. There's always got to be more. This is why when people open themselves up to extreme wickedness on the internet, they go further and further and further and further into deeper and darker wickedness. And so it's good for us to acknowledge that there is a peculiar temptation that that the psalmist is not saying these things are true of these kinds of people over here, but if you're in the church, don't worry, you're, you're not susceptible to that. No, he opens by acknowledging we are susceptible to that, that every one of us is susceptible, that we have a proneness, as Hengstenberg says, to what is evil. Listen to this, John Calvin. He says, we see how thoughtlessly men will throw themselves into the snares of Satan, how few comparatively there are who guard against the enticement of sin. That we may be fully apprised of our danger, it is necessary to remember that the world is fraught with deadly corruption and that the first step to living well is to renounce the company of the ungodly. Um, my dad used to try to beat a proverb into my brain when I was a kid. It didn't stick during my teenage years and young adults, but young adult years, but uh, the proverb is, the righteous should choose his friends carefully, for by way of the wicked he will be led astray. That um, a, a true believer, um, if he begins to surround himself or herself with wicked men and women, is inevitably going to be influenced by them. 
Bad company, the Bible says, corrupts good morals. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so the psalmist would have us take seriously that there is all around us counsel of the wicked. The idea, obviously, is that the counsel is counsel against God himself. It is, it is counsel of men seeking to set themselves up and make themselves a law unto themselves and a God unto themselves to devise a myriad of plans and schemes. You know, it's very interesting. The same word used in the Hebrew of counsel there in verse 1 is the same word that is used over in chapter 2, this couplet. Notice verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? They are scheming. They are counseling together. And what are they doing? What are they what are they counseling together? Notice the kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Messiah. So all the nations of the world are expending their energy in trying to break apart the unbreakable bond between the living God and the incarnate Christ. Because they know that this is his world, that the kingdoms of the world are the kingdoms of our Lord and of his, of his Christ. That Christ came to establish the kingdom of God. Notice the end of chapter 2. The Father says to the Son, You are my Son today. I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And so the nations are plotting. They're scheming. They're taking counsel together against the Lord and they're, they're calling others in. Another proverb that hit me when I was a new convert because I understood it experientially for the first time in my life is that the wicked do not rest until they've make, made someone fall. You see, all around us, people that don't know Christ are eager to draw you into their wickedness because their conscience has no peace until we join in with them. And so there are peculiar dangers. And the psalmist is saying, take note very seriously, there is a source of true blessedness, and it is not in anything in this fallen world. Notice, now positively, what is the source? Verse 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now, to understand this, you have to understand that they didn't have the whole canon of Scripture like we do in the days of David. But what they did have was at least the Pentateuch, and probably some other historical books that were being written, and then the Psalms that the Holy Spirit was inspiring through David and others. And so when David reflects here and says, blessed is the man who, who delights in the law of God and meditates on it day and night, he's not talking about just the Mosaic commandments. He's talking about everything God had revealed, everything in the Torah. He's talking about Genesis 3.15. He's talking about the Abrahamic promises. He's talking about the Ten Commandments. He's talking about everything God has revealed. And he's saying the, the, the place to find happiness, if you want to be happy, if you want a settled, lasting joy in your soul, there is one place to find it. It is in God's revelation in Scripture. And as we read it, mark it, learn it, and meditate on it, we will find that we have been brought by God into a condition of blessedness or happiness. You know, that's the great deception, isn't it? That the evil one has deceived us that if we have what God has forbidden us to have, that will make us happy. 
and we forfeit all the bounty of what he gives us that's good that really will give us a sense of happiness. Lewis has another essay. It was the last essay that he wrote, and it is about a man who had an affair with a woman, left his wife, married another woman, and the whole argument that he tells his friends is that she makes me happy. And Lewis's point is, well, how do you know that the happiness you think you're finding in her won't stop now and then it will be someone else and someone else and then they'll do that to you? Because there's no solid joys. There's no lasting pleasures in temporal and perishing things. But there is in delighting in the revelation that God has given us in Scripture. Now, um, I want to read another quote by Calvin to you. Listen to this. He says, If in the time of the psalmist it was necessary for devout worshipers of God to withdraw themselves from the company of the ungodly, to frame their life aright, how much more in the present day, when the world has become so much more corrupt, ought we carefully to avoid all dangerous society that we may be kept unstained by its impurities? Listen, this is a... This is a radical call to us to be very sober about what we take into our minds. Now, John Bunyan has another book called The Holy War. Maybe you've read it. And he talks about the eye gate and the ear gate and the need that you have to guard what you're taking in, what you're listening to, who you're taking counsel from. Um, I'm sometimes a little shocked and also saddened when I hear Christians jumping on the bandwagon of secular psychiatrists or psychologists or sociologists because they think they find something there that they can't get in God's Word. The psalmist says everything that you need to live a blessed, happy, spiritually rich, fulfilling life, everything is found in the Word. Isn't that marvelous? He doesn't say... Well, the Word's a big part of it, and then there's all this other stuff. He says, Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law meditates day and night. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. When, when David is fleeing from Saul or from Absalom, and he writes these incredible psalms that are prayers just flowing out of his heart to God, how, how does he do that when he doesn't have a Bible in front of him? He doesn't have a Crossway ESV app on his phone. He doesn't even know what a smartphone is. So you'd be like, what a what? And yet David is so full of God's word. He's so full of that earlier revelation that when he writes these Psalms under inspiration of the Spirit, you see the cumulative nature of what God revealed before coming to bear because David is a man who learned how to meditate on the law of God day and night, to delight in the law of God day and night. Um, you know, I just want to challenge you tonight that you would commit to being a people who sit and read God's Word meditatively, to read it slowly, to process it. I sometimes say, you know, there's a danger to Christians, especially in America, it seems to be a very... 20th, 21st century American thing to read through the Bible in a year. Uh, there's a danger in trying to just pack as much as we can in because we feel like quantitatively it will be better for us. And what David's saying is we ought to meditate. We ought to take our time, 
pour over God's Word. Think about what we're reading. Sinclair Ferguson has a great illustration. He says, meditating on Scripture is like the hard candy your grandparents used to give you. You constantly turn it over until you get everything out of it. That's a great illustration for what David means by meditating on the law of God day and night. Well, notice David now moves on to give us not just the source of blessedness for the righteous, he gives us the marks of the righteous. Notice he says in verse 3, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. Now, there is, there is a sense, there is a sense where David is, is arguably going back and drawing imagery from the Garden of Eden. He's, he's drawing off of, remember, those opening chapters where man was created in a state of blessedness. He lived in perfect, unbroken fellowship with the living God. He lived in that garden paradise. There, there was a river that ran through it. There was a tree of life in it. There was all of God's bounty and fruitfulness and fullness and that place, that garden sanctuary where man dwelt in communion with God in perfect holiness, it was, a, it was a picture of the fruitfulness and the bounty of God that he wished to confer on man. And yet in the fall, man has lost that. And yet David seems to be going back. Listen to this. Andrew Bonar says, perhaps this comparison to the tree and the stream should carry us back to Eden and suggest the state of man holy and happy there. Redeemed man rises up again to Eden blessedness. Isn't that awesome? Redeemed man or woman rises up again to a state of Eden blessedness. That's, that's what God has done for us. That's, that's what happens when we, when we meditate on God's word day and night. We realize that God is the God of our salvation, that he is given us a redeemer, that he has provided a redemption for us, that he has redeemed us from Satan, sin, death, his judgment, all of his and our enemies, and he is restoring us. He's making us a, a garden dwelling place. That's what the church is. It's The church is men and women and boys and girls who, if they are savingly united to Jesus, are trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. They are like the mighty cedars. They are like a tree planted by streams of water. I don't know much about botanical stuff, so if you know a lot, don't judge me. I'm not even going to argue with you. But I do know that I love crepe myrtles, and I do know that if you plant crepe myrtles too close to your house, those roots will go down very deep and will look for water even in your pipes if they can find it. And that they are looking for those roots to go as deep as they can, to draw out as much water as they can. And this is the picture. God has said that if you are a righteous man or woman in Christ, if you are meditating on his word day and night, if you are delighting in it, you are like a tree whose roots have a never-ending source of life-giving water in the Lord Jesus and in the Holy Spirit. That's awesome. Who doesn't want to be rooted? Who doesn't want your roots to go down as deeply as they can to make you as immovable as you can right where you need to be to draw everything God wants you to have? Now, there's another sense where the psalmist is going back to Joshua. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. Notice the rest of verse 3 and verse 4. And all that he does... 
he prospers. In all that he does, he prospers. You know, back in uh, Joshua 1, when God is calling Joshua to be a type of Christ and leading his people into the promised land and bringing them into where Moses had just brought them up to. And now as God is giving Joshua those instructions, notice this, he, he says in Joshua 1.8, listen to the similarity, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do all that's written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Do you see that almost verbatim language David is drawing off of? Joshua 1.8 and he's saying that, that the man or woman of God who God has planted like a tree by streams of living water Whose, whose leaves bear fruit in its season, in everything that he or she does, they will prosper. Now, you have to listen very carefully because the psalmist is not telling us that if this is true of us, our careers are going to take off like we've never seen, that our bank accounts are going to be bigger than we could ever imagine. He's not saying that. He's not talking about financial and physical prospering per se, though that may accompany these things, he's talking about spiritual prospering. Now, why would the psalmist want to bring in this idea of prospering in everything that we do, except that the psalmist knows when we look at the world, when we look at the world, it seems as if the wicked are prospering. There was a show when I was a teenager called MTV Cribs. And it was all these amazingly unintelligent hip-hop artists who had enormous houses, way too big for them. There's another proverb that, that, you know, prosperity is not fitting for a fool. And yet I would watch MTV Cribs, and it seemed like everything they did prospered. They had all the money, they had all the women, they had all the possessions, they had all the travel, they had all the cars, they had all the bling. And that's in every level of society. It's not just in that one genre. It is the wicked world around us. And when we look at the wicked, the psalmist in Psalm 78, Asaph, said that he was tempted. When he saw the wicked, he was tempted to envy what they had. And, and he wrestled internally in his soul and realized, if I tell other believers that, I'm going to be unfaithful to the generation of God's people. And so he dealt with it before the Lord internally, but he admitted that in his heart he saw the prosperity of the wicked and he wanted what the wicked had. And the psalmist understands that propensity. He gets that Asaph is not unique to that, that you are not unique to that, that all of us are subject to that. And so when he's speaking about the marks of the righteous, he brings in this idea of God making the righteous to prosper. All that you do will prosper. It may not look like what you think is prospering, but it will have God's blessing of prosperity on it. You know, when Paul is shipwrecked, when he is mob-lynched, when he is stoned, when he is scourged, that doesn't look like prosperity. But when you see all the lives of those who are converted because of his ministry, you understand that in all that he did, God was making him prosper. When you look at Joseph, falsely accused, thrown in a pit by his brothers, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, 
thrown in prison, rejected. It doesn't look like he's prospering. At the end of Genesis, we see that God was making all that he did to prosper. When we look at David, he's anointed king at 15. 15 long years, Saul is pursuing him. He's living in caves. He's living in dens. He's fleeing for his life. It doesn't look like he's prospering. But by the end of the book, in God's covenant with David, we see that in all that he did, he prospered. That means all the hard times, all the good times, all the sorrowful times, all the joyful times. It's all prosperity. Isn't that marvelous? When a believer contracts a terminal illness, but he or she is a true believer in Jesus Christ, it is prosperity. Because even if they die, they're going to be with Christ forever. In all that they do, they prosper. But notice, it's not enough to talk about the marks of the righteous. The psalmist now sets out the marks of the wicked. Notice this verse, for the wicked are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Now, imagine this for a moment. If you, if you went home and you turned on your television and you looked at every single rich and famous person you could find on television, no matter what, what the show, what the program, whatever it is, and you, you cumulatively brought all of the prosperity of the wicked into one place, if you could gather it all together, all the seeming prosperity of all the wicked in the world, and you could, and you could bring it all together, the psalmist said it's like chaff, which the wind blows away. That's all it is. It's just milled up, saw dust on the threshing floor. It's just chaff. There's nothing that keeps it grounded. There's nothing that makes it last. It is absolutely fleeting. It is all that the wicked will ever have in their life of prosperity. And the psalmist says it's just chaff. Um, it does us good to remember these different marks as we make our way through this world as we see what seems to be prosperity in the wicked, that we would remember that that is not real prosperity and that there are solid joys and lasting treasures that none but Zion's children know. Well, I want us to consider finally the destiny of the righteous and the wicked. We've looked at the source. We've looked at the marks. Now consider the destiny. Notice verse 5. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Now, again, he's juxtaposing, and now he's saying, what is the outcome going to be? In this life, God makes all that the righteous does to prosper, all that the wicked seems to be prospering and is just chaff, even here and now. But in the age to come, there is an ultimate destiny. Notice this. The wicked will not stand in the judgment. Now, if you turned over to the book of Revelation, I've mentioned this recently to you, there is that great vision where John uh, sees the heavens open and he sees the throne room and he hears things that are unutterable, as it were, and, and he, he, he hears about the, the judgments of God. He hears about um, the, the, the sovereignty of the Lamb. He, he understands that God is unfolding his righteous judgments in this world. And, and when John sees the terribleness of the judgments of God, he cries out in Revelation, he says, who can stand? Who can stand? 
Who among us thinks that we can stand before the judgment of the infinitely holy God? And the answer, of course, is no one. No one can stand. Here, the, the psalmist is telling us on judgment day, the wicked will not stand. They, they won't have any mooring. They won't have any bearing. They won't have any stability. They won't have a foundation. The, the chaff likeness of their life here and now will result in them not being able to stand on judgment day. And yet, as you read on in the book of Revelation, it's marvelous. The apostle John sees a multitude too great to number standing around the throne and around the Lamb. He says, I saw a multitude too great to number standing before the throne of God and the Lamb. So there is a people who will be able to stand in that day, but it's not because of anything in them. It's not because you are intrinsically better. It's not because you have been more committed to going to church. It's not because of anything you've done. It is merely because of the way in which you have become righteous, which is by faith in Jesus. Now listen very carefully. Someone cannot be understood apart from Psalm 14.1 and Psalm 53.1. Now, if you have studied Romans 3 carefully in any way, you'll know that those verses show up in Romans 3 and and there in Psalm 14.1, the psalmist says, there is none righteous. No, not one. In Psalm 53, 1, the psalmist says, There is none righteous. No, not one. Now, we have Psalm 1 saying, Blessed is the righteous man. And we have Psalm 14 saying, There are no righteous people. And that ought to strike you as an important thing to try to reconcile. How is it that Psalm 1 can speak of the blessed man, the righteous, but then Psalm 14 can say there is none righteous. And the very simple solution is that, honestly, everyone by nature is part of the wicked. There is no congregation of the righteous unless the Lord has created that for himself through the work of redemption. And it's very interesting, and don't miss this, in this psalm, the righteous is singular and the wicked is plural. The righteous are not so. The wicked are not so. The Lord knows the way of the righteous singular, but the way of the wicked plural will perish. Now, I think there are two ways that we could, we could understand this. One, and I've heard this many times, is that the psalmist may be intimating that there are not many righteous and that there are many wicked. That comparatively, broad is the way that leads to destruction. Many there are that go in thereby, but as our Lord said, narrow is the way that leads to life and few there be that find it. And that's true. I'm not sure that's what the psalmist is saying, though. I think rather we are to look at this psalm and we are to say, how in the world am I to be included among the righteous? And what I want to say tonight is it's not by your meditation on the law of God day and night. That doesn't make you righteous. How do I know that? Because Jesus um, confronts the Pharisees and the scribes and he says, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they that reveal me and you, you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. So it is possible to read God's word till you are blue in the face and it will not make you righteous. 
But if we read God's word as he has breathed it out and we come to know the righteous one, Jesus Christ, and then we trust in him, God makes us righteous in him. Now listen to this. I love this. Sinclair Ferguson said, Our Lord Jesus Christ must have sung this psalm, learned it perhaps, perhaps even would sing it with his stepfather Joseph, who was a man who wonderfully illustrated the principle of this psalm. Why then, if Jesus could sing the psalm about the joy, about the delight, about the prosperity of the man who walks after the counsel of the Most High God, why on earth did his life end as though he were one of the wicked, like chaff that the wind blows and drives away, unable to stand in the judgment, excluded from the assembly of the righteous, not able to say, Lord, as he was dying on the cross, not able to say, Lord, you are watching over my way, but crying out, my God, why am I forsaken? Why, why, why? Why did the psalm not work in Jesus' case? Ferguson says, of course, the answer is because Jesus is the only case in which it really did work. The only truly righteous one, the only truly happy one, willing to give all that he gave up to become sin, to bear our wickedness, to become our lostness, in order that as he rose again, having paid the penalty for our sins of sacrifice, having been accepted, he might come back and say to us, now, let the two of us, as you trust in me, let us sing this psalm together. Isn't that awesome? Jesus is dealt with as if he were the wicked one, because we are the wicked, and he is the righteous, and he delighted perfectly and sinlessly in the law of God day and night, Every single second of every day, he was meditating on the word that his father had revealed through him in the scriptures to make us righteous, to make us trees of righteousness, to plant us beside streams of living water. Now that means before you leave here tonight and say, I'm going to meditate on God's word day and night, you need to say, have I seen my need for the righteous one? because I am not righteous in and of myself. I deserve the exact same destiny as the wicked, but God in his mercy has said, I'm going to make you part, notice this, part of the congregation of the righteous, the assembly. Notice that there is no assembly for the wicked in the hereafter. Isn't that interesting? The wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Now, I think the psalmist is reflecting on that multitude too great to number in glory that forever will be gathered around the throne singing the praises of God and of the Lamb. And this congregation is just a tiny, tiny little minuscule subset of that great assembly, the general assembly, the church of the firstborn in heaven. And if you're in Christ, you are going to be there forever. And that means no matter what you go through in this life, no matter how hard things get, no matter how much it seems like you're not prospering, no matter how much it seems like the wicked are prospering, if you are resting in Christ, if you are in Christ by faith alone, if you are righteous in Christ, if you delight yourself now in the law of God because you're in Christ, Every single thing that happens to you is prosperity. And everything that results is real, lasting happiness. 
You know who I think understands this probably better than anyone I've ever seen uh, speak publicly is Johnny Erickson Tata. I'm, I'm often ashamed at my joylessness, my lack of spiritual happiness and blessedness when I listen to her, the joy. Here's a woman that has a fraction of what we have and yet has seemingly infinitely more joy than we have because she's come to understand the source of true blessedness. It's not in her mobility. It's not in the things she used to be able to do. It's in where God has her planted as a tree by a stream of living water. And the living God wants that for us. So I want to encourage you tonight as we meditate on this and as you fix your eyes on the righteous man, the Lord Jesus, that you would also commit to being a people who do not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, sit in the seat of scorners, but your delight would be in the law of God, and on that you would meditate day and night. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you and praise you for this word. We thank you for all that you have breathed out in Scripture, how how many joys and delights and treasures you have embedded in your word. And our God, we do pray tonight that we would find ourselves savingly united to your Son, Jesus Christ, that we would understand that if we are part of the assembly of the righteous, it is only because of the righteous one. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us to meditate often on how you delighted in the law of your Father from beginning to end, day and night, even when you were on the cross, citing Scripture and trusting in him. Our God, would you give us the same heart that you gave the Lord Jesus? We pray that you would not let us be disillusioned, that you not let us be illusioned by the seeming prosperity of the wicked, but that you would remind us that you are longing to plant us by rivers of living water. Oh God, would you give us to drink from the rivers of your pleasure? Would you give us the living water, Lord Jesus? And we pray that you would make us exceedingly fruitful as we trust in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.